0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the history and resurgent idea of the company town, sometimes described by other names to obscure the reality, and the problem of affordable housing they're actually trying to solve. Clips today are from Knowing Better, It's History, PBS, The Wall Street Journal, Breaking Points, The Young Turks… The Majority Report, and a TED Talk with additional members-only clips from Knowing Better and CNN.
1: When we talk about company towns in America, there's a tendency to frame them as some quaint relic of the past, something that faded away a century ago because of how obviously undemocratic they are. But lately, the discussion has included a warning about how some corporations, like Facebook and Amazon, are trying to bring them back. You've probably also heard the news about Nevada's innovation zones, and we'll definitely talk about those later. But I'd like to discuss company towns from a different perspective. They aren't making a comeback because they never went anywhere. They still exist. These aren't some long-forgotten quirk of American history. They are American history. To illustrate this point, we're going to start with the easiest elementary school history question I can possibly think of. How was America founded? Since we just celebrated Thanksgiving, your immediate answer was probably the Pilgrims, and that fairy tale we tell ourselves about religious freedom or whatever. And I want you to just… Set that aside for a moment. In 1607, the Virginia Company of London established a colonial settlement on the east coast of the New World specifically to look for gold. This was a major plot point in that terrible Disney movie. Gold! Mountains of it! They didn't find any gold, or food, and just when the colony was about to pack up and go home, John Rolfe showed up with a shipment of tobacco seeds. He's the one who ends up marrying-slash-kidnapping Pocahontas, not John Smith. The point is, by 1614, Jamestown was a thriving tobacco plantation and most of the workers came from European countries like Germany and Poland as indentured servants. Meaning that the company paid for their trip over to the New World in exchange for a few years of labor. There was so much work to do on the plantation that they began importing African slaves in 1619, which is where the name of that infamous project comes from. The Mayflower and Plymouth Rock didn't happen until 1620, the first English city in America was not founded by the Pilgrims, it was a tobacco company town built on the exploitation of immigrants and slaves. This will be a recurring theme in America, and I should mention that this isn't necessarily unique to the United States. Cape Town South Africa was founded in 1652 by the Dutch East India Company, and the Hudson's Bay Company, which would eventually control most of what we now call Canada, was founded in 1670. But because of America's early adoption of laissez-faire capitalism, Company towns really took off here. When Britain first began industrializing, they focused on textile manufacturing, so it really shouldn't come as much of a surprise that many of the first towns in America were textile mills. They often popped up near rivers and waterfalls which were used to turn the giant water wheels. Throughout the 1700s, most of these mills were temporary. They'd operate for a season or two before freezing over in the winter and being abandoned. All that changed with the invention of the steam engine, now these mills could operate year-round. The first large-scale, planned industrial community was Lowell, Massachusetts, constructed in 1822 by Merrimack Manufacturing as a hub for the textile industry. The town incorporated in 1826 meaning they could elect their own local government. By 1850, the Boston Associates had moved in and there were 40 different mills with 33,000 workers living in hundreds of boarding houses around the city, all of which coordinated their policies and hours with each other. The idea behind Lowell was to take single young women out of the nearby farms, where they were just seen as an extra mouth to feed, and put them to work in the mills. Many of them saw the work as an escape from boring rural life. As the labor needs of the mills grew, they again turned to immigrants, focusing on women from Ireland and French Canada. At its peak, half of the city was made up of foreign-born residents. In Lowell, they could learn a skilled trade, save up for college, or build a dowry. Because apparently that was still a thing in the mid 1800s. Since these were all single young women who needed to be protected from the evils of the outside world, a strict moral code was enforced across the entire city. Alcohol and dancing were prohibited, and church attendance was mandatory. Boarding house keepers were often elderly women who would keep an eye on the workers, and anyone caught engaging in immoral behavior would be fired. Depending on the severity, they might also be blacklisted from working anywhere in the city. Since all of the mills coordinated their hours, The entire town ran on a system of bells which rang for the start of work, the occasional break, and the 10pm curfew. This was really the first time in history that people worked by the hour rather than on a daily production quota. Many of the workers suspected that the factory clocks were rigged meaning that minutes were longer during the workday and shorter during off hours. People didn't really carry around watches yet so they eventually bought an independent town clock to keep the mills honest. To avoid any disputes, all of the Lowell mills paid their workers the same amount, about $12 to $14 a month which was six times what a teacher was paid back then. They worked for twelve hours a day, six days a week, and were given three unpaid holidays a year. During the Civil War, most of the textile mills in the North shut down as they were cut off from their primary source of cotton. When the war ended, most textile manufacturing moved to the South, and by the end of World War II all of the mills in Lowell, Massachusetts were closed. In 1877, just at the tail end of Reconstruction, a railroad strike began in West Virginia and quickly spread to the surrounding states. And eventually, the entire country. It lasted two weeks and included over 100,000 workers. It was at this point that the upper classes began to fear the mob, which vastly outnumbered them and could rise up and destroy a city at any moment. Many of them suggested establishing police forces or maintaining a standing army to quell uprisings. But a few of the more innovative industrialists decided that they would fix all of society's problems by rebuilding it from the ground up. The first of these men that I want to talk about was George Pullman. He was a believer in paternalism, where the initial vision for and daily existence of an ideal community was articulated and facilitated by a capitalist father figure who promised to share their bounty with workers and their families. His theory was immediately criticized as benevolent, well-wishing feudalism. Pullman thought that if he built the perfect model town for his factory, he could create a new type of dependable worker who would always be loyal. Because if you provide for their every need, they'll never rise up against you.
2: The model industrial town of Pullman, Illinois, saw its beginning on May the 26th, 1880. This town was the physical expression of an idea born and nurtured in the mind of George M. Pullman, President of Pullman's Palace Car Company, although his primary manufacturing plant was in Detroit, Pullman was a long-time Chicago resident. His plan was ambitious. You see, by developing a total environment superior to that available to other working-class areas, Pullman hoped to attract the most skilled workers to build his luxury rail cars and attain greater productivity due to his employees' better health and spirit. It was Pullman's philosophy that happy workers would make more productive workers. So he hired the best in architecture and landscaping to help him realize his vision. The 4,000-acre track selected for the factory and town lay in open prairie and marshland along the western shore of Lake Calumet, approximately 12 miles south of Chicago. The site was perfect, as the town would have accessibility to the big city markets and railroad connections throughout the country. It was linked to Chicago and the southern states by the Illinois Central Railroad, and then on to the world. By Lake Calumet's connection to Lake Michigan and the St. Lawrence River. Even before Pullman's first residents settled there in 1881, visitors came to admire its beauty, which stood in stark contrast to other working class areas and industrial cities. Pullman employees executed the construction of the town. Structures were made of brick fashioned from clay found in Lake Calumet. A brickyard was built south of the town for this purpose. Furthermore, Pullman shops produced parts used throughout the building of the town. This project was perhaps one of the first applications of industrial technology and mass production in constructing a large scale housing development. Amazingly, the town of more than 1,000 homes and public buildings was completed by 1884. Most Pullman employees lived in houses containing two to seven rooms, foundations, and some ornamentation were made of stone and pitched roofs were made of slate the home's Produced in blocks of two or more Provided an economy of construction and maintenance Each dwelling was supplied with gas and water Access to complete sanitary facilities And abundant quantities of sunlight and fresh air Every home had direct access to a private yard Woodshed and paved alley Front and backyards provided personal green space While expansive parks and open lands Provided larger shaded ones Maintenance of the was included in the rental price, as was daily garbage pickup. So Pullman workers lived in brick houses and had access to schools, parks, a library, a theater, educational programs, and many other activities provided by the town. When the state labor commissioner visited in 1884, they proclaimed it was a successful venture, especially for the women and children who seemed protected from the worst aspects of industrial America— Pullman's architect was incredibly proud that he had met the workers' needs within the neighborhood and designs. Some even say that the distinctive row houses were comfortable by the standards of today. The concept of a company town like Pullman was not new or even unique. However, it can be argued that the execution of the idea in this case was perhaps the most successful in history. The total cost to build the Pullman town was $8 million. The first permanent residence, the Benson family, moved into the town on January the 1st, 1881, at Lawrence Street. By April, the Pullman car shops were in operation. By May, more than 350 people lived in Pullman. The original town of Pullman was completed in 1884, with an average rent for a three-room apartment costing about $8 per month. The rent for a five-room row house with a basement, Bathroom and water faucet on every two floors was $18 per month. Larger homes for professionals and company officers began at $25. Rents were calculated to achieve a 6% return on the cost of housing. However, the investment never reached more than 4.5%. Housing in Pullman was somewhat more expensive than in other parts of the city, but it's important to note here that the housing quality was far superior to that available. to workers elsewhere. All Pullman homes had indoor toilet facilities and running water, which was unheard of for the working class in the area of the city back then. By 1885, 30,000 trees bordered the streets and parks, primarily white elm, maple, ash, and linden. To supply enough landscaping materials for the entire community, six acres of land on the shore of Lake Calumet between 113th and 114th streets were used for a nursery and a greenhouse space. Various housing types can be found from block to block. The architectural differences were designed to meet varying incomes, status, and family makeup. But there was also a visual aspect as they suited variation in the general streetscape. Such variations are evident in the level of ornamentation in the roof lines chimneys and finished materials continuity was maintained by the similarity of proportions repetition of crucial details and setbacks from the street in many ways the pullman district was an amazing climax to an amazing success you see towards the end of the 1850s george pullman began remodeling passenger coach railroad cars. The Pullman Palace Car Corporation was incorporated in 1867. Its first manufacturing shops were in Detroit and New York State. By 1877, it operated about 460 luxury passenger cars, supervised by Caucasian conductors and African-American porters. By the early 1890s, nearly 6,000 of the company's 14,000 employees nationwide worked in Pullman, where annual output stood at 12,000 freight cars and 1,000 passenger cars. But as you've probably noticed by now, in our tales of urban decay, nothing lasts forever. After an economic downturn in 1893, the company laid off thousands of workers. Pullman employees responded in 1894 by going on strike. This strike soon had national effects because tens of thousands of American railway union members showed their support for Pullman workers by launching a boycott of trains pulling Pullman cars. So in response to a drop in orders for rail cars, the company lowered its workers' wages, but not the rents it charged those workers for the company housing. When a delegation of workers tried to meet with Pullman to preserve their grievances, he refused the meeting and ordered them fired. Ultimately, the board voted to strike and Pullman workers left the job on May the 11th, 1894.
3: Coal Town really is almost an instruction ground for exploitation. Mine workers They can see it very directly, and their families see it very directly. They take all the risks, they bring out that coal, and it's producing wealth for people who don't live there.
4: The coal towns were almost always unincorporated. There were no elected officials, no independent police forces. Owners hired private detective agencies to watch over their workforce. Company towns were also untethered from the free market competition owners usually championed. Operators often paid workers in company currency, called scrip. They forced mining families to shop exclusively at the company store, which they stocked with food, fuel, and clothing. Even the tools and blasting powder required on the job. They set the prices of all those goods to assure a profit a hedge against operating losses in the mines themselves.
5: They paid you with their money. You bought your food off of them. Unless you wanted to take a a dollar script and sell it for 75 cents government money and lose a fourth of your wages, they was oppressed all the time. If they give the miners a raise, then they're gonna raise the rent and raise the everything to cost the food and the company store and raise the clothing and everything. So you actually you're right back where you started from.
2: When a miner went to pick up his check, they had what was called a checkoff list. Your house belongs a company, we check that much off. You, You bought your groceries here this month at the company store, we check that off. By the time they finished the check off, there was very little left.
4: The only options that you have once you're trapped in that system is to keep your head down and do what you're told or stand up and fight.
0: Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show.
5: People tend to think of, about a town where the company owns everything, where the um, the company has built all the housing. There's a company store. and many of these coal mining towns, people were not paid in American currency, they're paid in company-issued money that's really only good at the company store. Author
4: Hardy Green has written extensively about the history of company towns.
5: There is no strict definition of company town. A company town, there's really only one company that uh, dominates. But beyond that, there's a wide range. Some towns are more restrictive, more exploitative, and others are more caring and paternalistic. The
4: more exploitative company towns, like the one referred to in Travis's song, tended to be communities based around a single resource.
5: Coal towns or extractive industry towns tend to be a little bit like, you know, prison camps. Like
4: Snailbrook and Starbase, many of America's oldest and best-known company towns, like Pullman, Illinois and Hershey, Pennsylvania, were created by wealthy industrialists who envisioned idyllic communities for their employees.
5: Utopian ideals have figured prominently in a number of company towns.
4: Milton Hershey built his chocolate factory complex in rural Pennsylvania. To attract employees to what was then a remote location, Hershey constructed a
5: town. Workers were allowed to buy the housing. They're fairly well-paid. The houses are come with central heating and uh, plumbing but milton hershey's
4: relationship with his employees soured in 1937 hershey's workers organized the company's first labor union and went on strike that's a common theme in the history of many company towns like hershey pullman illinois was a paternalistic company town that had housing stores a library and churches but pullman like hershey eventually ran into trouble In 1894, Pullman cut jobs and wages, sparking a violent workers' strike.
5: It started off being an an experiment that the founders thought would be a kind of paternalistic place, but it it didn't work out.
4: According to Green, Musk's towns somewhat resemble the paternalistic company towns of old.
5: Yeah, you could argue that, that Musk is employing a kind of a throwback idea of starting from scratch in an undeveloped area.
4: An undeveloped area that is being developed quickly even as it is under the close watch of Chap Ambrose.
5: We're not anti-growth, we're not anti-Elon, but we are pro-clean water. And unfortunately, those opposing forces seem to be coming to head for some reason.
4: Whether Snailbrook or Starbase will avoid the pitfalls of previous company towns remains to be seen. Neither have yet been incorporated, so technically, neither exist in a legal sense. But if Musk does decide to incorporate either town, that shouldn't be too difficult. In Texas, as soon as a community has 201 residents, it can petition to incorporate.
1: After World War II, the automobile and the suburbs gave birth to a cousin of the single enterprise community known as the Corporate Campus. These are gated office complexes usually located a few miles outside of town. The first of these were built in Summit, New Jersey by Bell Labs in 1944 and were soon followed by IBM in 1957 and PepsiCo in 1958, but nowadays we typically associate these with tech companies in Silicon Valley. Google's complex in Mountain View, California was built in 2004 and Facebook built their campus in Menlo Park in 2011. These campuses offer numerous on-site amenities to attract talent. These include free food, gym memberships, laundry service, daycare centers, massage parlors, and even isolation pods where you can take power naps. Both of these companies have announced plans to build worker housing in the next few years. Facebook in particular wants to expand their Willow Village campus to include a grocery store, pharmacy, hotel gyms, and even a school. This would transform them from a corporate campus to a full-blown company town with a white collar twist. But somewhat more recently, in February 2021, the governor of Nevada announced his plans to create innovation zones within the state.
6: Following the passage of my innovation zone legislation, Blockchains LLC has committed to make an unprecedented investment in our state to create a smart city in Northern Nevada that would fully run on blockchain technology, making Nevada the epicenter of this emerging industry and creating the high paying jobs and revenue that go with it.
1: The plan was immediately criticized by labor unions and the general public. In order to create an Innovation Zone, a company must own 50,000 acres of uninhabited, undeveloped land within a single county and make a $250 million initial investment, with a pledge to invest at least a billion more over the next ten years. But the real kicker is this would allow them to create their own government separate from the county to pass laws favorable to the company. The Innovation Zone Fact website specifically mentions Disney's Reedy Creek as an inspiration for how they reimagine the traditional division of local regulatory powers. This plan would also allow Blockchains LLC to pay their employees using their own cryptocurrency, which is just a digital version of company script. If you think this is shady AF. You're not alone. After public outcry at this obvious attempt to bring back Company Towns, the governor withdrew his support for the bill only two months later. And therein lies the fundamental misunderstanding. They weren't trying to sneakily bring back Company Towns because Company Towns never disappeared in the first place. The 1999 movie October Sky tells the true story of the Rocket Boys who, after learning about Sputnik in 1957, decided they'd rather become rocket scientists than toil in the mines of Colwood, West Virginia, a real town in McDowell County owned and operated by the Olga Coal Company until 1986. I was alive when company towns existed in America. I realize that a lot of you are now trying to do the math to figure out how old I am, So. I'll just come out and say it. I was TODAY years old because they still exist! New Halem and Diablo Washington are two company towns owned by Seattle City Light that are located near the hydroelectric dams which provide power to the Seattle area. There are only a few hundred residents and they're mostly a tourist destination, but they still count. There have been over 2,500 company towns in America over its history. They're an integral part of our past and present. And if we're not careful, they'll be part of our future too. Company towns have always existed for the sole purpose of exploiting their workers and keeping out unions. That's been the point since the very beginning. In June of 1619, Polish workers at Jamestown began the first strike on American soil over not being given voting rights in the local assembly. To avoid any further labor issues, Jamestown began importing African slaves just two months later. It kind of changes your perspective on American history to learn that our original sin was actually just a scheme to avoid collective action by the working class. And when the American worker gained too many rights, we began exporting this idea to other countries. While many manufacturers have outsourced their jobs overseas, white collar companies are converting their campuses into self-contained cities or building entirely new ones in the desert. More forward-thinking companies have their eyes on space. Blue Origin was founded by Jeff Bezos with the vision of enabling a future where millions of people are living and working in space for the benefit of Earth. Do you want to live in the Expanse? Because that's how you get the Expanse. If Elon Musk gets to Mars before any actual country, that incredible moment for humanity won't be regarded in the history books with the same reverence as Apollo 11. It'll be Jamestown all over again. distant backwater corporate colony founded with some extreme opinions on capitalism that'll probably declare independence the moment it becomes self-sufficient. Keep in mind, it took Jamestown 170 years to get to that point. I'm not saying this will happen in our lifetimes, but future generations will be living in the worst versions of science fiction if we don't stop corporations from repeatedly reinventing the idea of company towns, calling them everything from colonial plantations to technological innovation zones.
7: Elon Musk's proposed utopia town, get a job at one of his companies, and you could become the newest resident of Snailbrook. Musk employees have described it as a Texas utopia.
8: What do you think? Does Elon's new utopia represent a form of benevolent paternalism where the company is there to take care of its employees' needs and provide them with a good quality of life, or is this just another incarnation of modern-day serfdom? Reporting from the Wall Street Journal, quote, In meetings with landowners and real estate agents, Mr. Musk and employees of his companies have described his vision as sort of a Texas utopia along the Colorado River, where his employees could live and work. The boring company employees could apply for a home with rent starting at about $800 a month for a two or three bedroom. But if an employee leaves or is fired, he or she would have to vacate the house within 30 days. Depending on your background, your opinion of company towns can probably go one of two ways. Forbes magazine writes, affordable housing, corporate America can be part of the solution, quote, as housing prices continue to rise across the nation. Developers, local governments and major corporations have an opportunity to work together in the 21st century as partners rather than adversaries to help address the inequities of housing affordability on numerous fronts. This would be the most generous interpretation. I'll just put it that way. It's kind of perfect that Forbes magazine, a flagship corporatist publication, was the one to actually put forth this take, a take that I'm very familiar with because it's the world where I come from. This is going to be a slight to my alma mater, but day one of business school, we were indoctrinated with this notion that we weren't in it for the money. We were in, quote, the business of doing good. But then we took classes about how to make money through private equity, how to union bus, how to personify a brand in a way to manipulate consumers to buy, buy, buy. And that was somehow good. That was okay because it obfuscated the realities of what we were doing. This is just my opinion. The genesis of a lot of society's problems that the business community purports to want to solve are oftentimes byproducts of private industry's blind pursuit of profit.
7: Okay, so I saw this tweet the other day about Elon Musk reportedly building a town in Texas for his employees to work and live in, and I saw up here that they were like, oh my gosh, the history of company towns, and I was like, oh no, we're back on this. Now,
8: this is the other take, the take that I think is more honest because it's based on history. You know, the old adage that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior.
7: So company towns were popular in the U.S. from the 1880s to the 1930s. The company would own all the buildings and businesses in that town. And these companies tried to build a, like, utopian workers' society.
8: Coincidence? I think not. This is the exact pitch that Elon Musk is making, a Texas utopia. And what does history tell us about such utopias?
4: I'm in Lolo, Colorado, where in 1914, Colorado National Guardsmen killed upwards of 20 plus citizens including women and children for striking against Colorado Fuel and Iron's extremely unsafe and exploitative labor practices. At the time Colorado Fuel and Iron built company towns to house their workers, providing them with health care, education, and basic amenities. However, these towns were wholly owned and operated by the company and they were created to control their workers exploit their labor, instill loyalty and to prevent unionization
8: Ah, I get it and I think you get it too. It will be a Utah utopian worker society in the sense that it will be optimized for the company to extract the most amount of value that it can out of the worker, key tenets of such utopia, productivity, efficiency, centralized control. Is it possible that it is not a coincidence why in America healthcare is tied to your employer, vacation days, if you get any at all, are set by the company, sick days, parental lease, all tied to your employer? I think this is done by design to increase the corporate sphere of influence and limit your recourse against potential exploitation. Do you really wanna add housing to that list as well?
9: I took a job that was ran by a billionaire and how the housing was set up is that you could either live in the housing or you could find your own like apartment or house. And these homes were nice. They were mini mansions. Okay. They were really nice, but it was terrifying because that job was so abusive, but I didn't want to leave because that meant I did not have housing.
8: This is serfdom. No, I mean, I, I kind of get it. The housing is going to be below market rate, but with every basic human need tied to your employer Are you really, truly free? Really think about it. All the downstream effects. Imagine if you're being discriminated at work by your boss or if you spot a safety issue or you simply have a different viewpoint than Elon. If you're in constant fear of losing your job and your shelter in one fell swoop, do you actually have any freedom at all? We're talking about Elon Musk here, a hardcore kind of guy, one who really likes to test the boundaries of the law. Case in point, his Tesla Gigafactory was purportedly built on wage theft and safety violations.
7: Three little towns have downtown main streets with old buildings. And they're full of mom and pop restaurants and shops. Elon Musk came to town. His team are bringing a whole new energy to our county. Jobs that are not an hour away from where they live. A lot of times our kids grow up and they've had to go away to be an engineer. The more opportunities we plant, the more the kids will be with us. This is somewhat
8: tricky for me to discuss because I am not in the Elon Musk is an idiot type camp. This is a guy, he built PayPal, he revolutionized electric vehicles at Tesla, SpaceX is beating NASA at space exploration. Twitter, I'm not so sure about it. I'm gonna withhold judgment there. You can't take those successes away from him, but come on, let's be real. What do you, what do you think is gonna happen to that town? You think he's gonna be like, guys, guys, we have to respect the history and culture of the town. We have to be sure not to displace the local population. We have to build responsibly. No way. He's already trying to dump wastewater into the Colorado River. And they say that the reason that they have to do that is that the facility right now doesn't tie into the city's treatment system. The infrastructure is currently not in place yet. So in the interim, this is their solution. And that's according to Rajiv Patel, an environmental consultant working with the Boring company. Yeah, what's the big deal? 140,000 gallons of wastewater? No worries. By the way, I did some digging. The environmental consultant Rajiv Patel is a partner at GreenThink Consulting LLC where they provide regulatory expertise in environmental compliance. I know, environmental consulting, it sounds really wholesome, but it is just corporate speak for, we will help you find the best way to skirt environmental regulations
5: and not get sued. The dirt that you pull out of a tunnel, there are government regulations on what you have to do with that because it inc- it's, there's oil, there's grease, there's products in there. There are families down there drinking well water from the same well, from the same aquifer groundwater that I'm pulling from too. And I hope I hope they're concerned. I want this to be a positive thing. I'm not anti-Musk, I'm not anti-growth, I'm not anti-tunneling, uh, but I'm anti-breaking the law and I'm anti-corporations who think they can tell our officials that the rules don't apply to them. Right,
8: I talked about this at length a few weeks ago, but we got a big problem in present day America. We got a case of billionaires acting like wannabe kings. People like Elon Musk think they are the law. Like he says all these wonderful things. I wanna protect the environment. I wanna preserve free speech. I wanna build this utopian town, save humanity, yada, yada. But that's not who Elon Musk is.
4: His approach is to do anything required to keep his businesses competitive.
8: He is a ruthless businessman. And a lot of people revere him for that, but that is all he is. He is for protecting his speech, his freedom, not yours. If he wants people to work like he wanted them to work at Twitter, well, yeah, they ain't never leaving that town. They ain't never no, leave
6: in no, that no, town. They're no,
7: not wrong about that.
8: <laughs> they going to work 24 7 in that town. They're not wrong. Company town or no company town, to Elon Musk, everything, everyone is a resource, a means to build his empire, to expand his empire. You are a cog in his machine. If you are working, great. But if you get sick, injured, step out of line, you will be discarded and replaced.
6: Book like hell. I mean, you just have to put in, you know, 80 hour, 80 to 100 hour weeks every week.
8: The thing about all this work is that because he owns the company, he reaps all the reward. But if you're like on the factory floor, it's a little bit more akin to indentured servitude. So Snailbrook, Texas, Elon Musk's new company town, I hate to say it with his employees sounding pretty jazzed about it, but it's not gonna be utopia. Well, maybe for Elon, it'll be his utopia, but for most everyone else, it'll be dystopia.
7: You know that politicians are really failing their own constituents when uh, those same constituents need to rely on corporations like Disneyland and Disney World. Uh, To create affordable housing and that's what's currently transpiring in the great state of Florida, which of course I wish people would stop referring to as a purple state because it is not a purple state. It is a red state. Let's let's be clear on that. Now uh, Disney is planning to donate 80 acres of land in Orlando, Florida for the project to build affordable housing for its employees. Okay, so and it's look, this has been a problem. All across the country where people cannot afford to live in the same area that their place of work is at, okay? That's certainly true in in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, you see it everywhere, right? And obviously, we're seeing it in Orlando as well. And so Disney thought, maybe we need to step in because we need workers. And if they can't afford to live here, that's going to be a problem. The Michaels organization will build, own, and operate the 1,300 unit development meant to ease the housing market for service workers in Metro Orlando. The units will be available to qualified applicants who are Disney employees or members of the public. So everyone.
10: (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess there are some other qualifications baked into- (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> qualified but it's like well if you're an employee or if you're not not employee yeah totally. yeah i'm assuming there are other qualifications
7: yeah now um let's get to some more details the development is about 15 minutes away from disney world which is great banger love that um the project was announced in april of this year but disney just announced their collaboration with the michael's organization today so that's why it's getting a little more a little more attention now sadly the project may be a little more than a you know what measuring contest? Because there have been other companies, <laughs> competitors to Disney specifically, that have uh, done something similar earlier, uh, including Universal, which announced its affordable housing plans uh, in March of this year. So, but whatever, I don't, really, I don't even care if this is if this is the kind of you know what measuring contest that corporations got involved in. More of it, please. Please, please keep measuring, okay? Because if we have to, like, it's sick that we have to rely on corporations in this case to build Mm affordable housing. But they're not doing it out of the kindness of their own hearts. They're doing it because it's going to benefit them. And they want people to, like, get off their backs about, you know, the employees not being paid enough to live in the communities they're working in.
10: Yeah. Maybe you could
7: pay them more. I don't know, but whatever.
10: That's a good point. Yeah. Seems like that'd be cheaper in the long run.
7: But you know what, we do need more affordable housing. Because look, think about it this way, more affordable housing, even if only Disney employees can take advantage of that affordable housing, still increases the inventory of housing overall. And that could lower rent possibly. Mm-hmm. um in other cases as
10: well we'll see yeah no we we obviously need a massive influx 1300 that's you know drop of the bucket nationally but for that area for their employees probably quite a bit i don't know how many total employees they have i assume in that area probably still a lot but this will help um i don't i don't love it though not only because it signals that as you said we can't rely on the state or federal government to do a better job of this but also uh i don't like the idea of like like corporate towns coming back yeah. and stuff like that. And I know that Disney already kind of has a version of Disney that.
7: Disney is definitely um, already a corporate town.
10: Yeah, I just will look. Or Universal is doing it too. I don't. I know that you know a company like Tesla will move into an area and create like a whole area of its own. I don't love the historic, like the stuff that's happened in examples of this in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it, it would be possible that they could set up a thing like this, and if there were the right sort of regulations, either state or federal regulations, that it could just be housing. We'll see if that's what ends up happening. Obviously, Florida's governor has had a pretty uh, adversarial relationship with Disney. I don't know how that affects the housing thing potentially. Maybe they're doing the right thing. I don't know. I don't love the idea that they would need to get involved in this.
7: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But I I just think in this case, uh, corporations have more of a vested interest in building the affordable housing as opposed to our politicians.
9: Yeah, so I-135 is a community-led citizens' initiative that uh, would create what would be called the seattle social housing developer which is uh would be a new public development authority in the city of seattle to build create uh purchase and maintain social housing which is defined as permanently affordable publicly owned cross-class housing uh that is led by the residents who live in it
3: is there a um would this initiative not only create the agency i guess. Would it provide funding, and would it uh, create some type of parameters for how much housing it should build? And and like, and if so, what would those parameters be?
9: Yeah, that's a great question. So the initiative itself only sets up the developer. Um, There were a number of Washington state laws that prohibited us from including funding directly in the initiative. So um, while we initially set out to attach a progressive revenue source to the initiative, we learned fairly early on in the drafting process that we couldn't do that for a bunch of legal reasons. Um, so our coalition intends to stay together as we, uh, move forward after this is hopefully passed so that we can, uh, create a new progressive revenue source that would, uh, help to fund it. And then there are no specific parameters of how much housing this should build. Um, the idea is that this is being set up and it will exist in perpetuity. So, um, we hope that it can, you know, over time begin to, uh, make more of our housing stock, a public good. Um, so, you know, taking housing off of the private market when it goes up for sale and putting it on to, uh, into the social housing market so that we can have housing more as a public good in Seattle so that more people can afford to live here.
3: Does it, does it have a mandated, um, like goals, like what's to, so if I understand correctly, it's, you're setting up the entity that will, um, execute, uh the the, this program of housing and and i'm going to ask you in a minute to to explain the, the housing a little bit more and then i guess like part two is getting the funding for this entity to execute these things does it have is it is it does it have a mandate as to you know how much it should at least endeavor or aspire to create uh and so that the funding matches that or is it the funding, the de- creates the the mandate essentially as to what its its aspirations and goals are.
9: Yeah. Um. So it is not. Yeah. There's no no mandate on how much it should create. Um. It will be set up very much like. So it's uh, under Washington State's Public Development Authority rules. Uh, it'll be look a lot like the Pike Place Market, which is our most kind of nationally famous public development authority. Um. The Pike Place Market. Uh, has been around for a long time. And over time, they've you know developed more and created more of a community resource in the Pike Place market. Um, and so this, yeah, like I said, the uh, development authority will be set up and then we're going to go after a progressive revenue source. Um, and then the amount of housing that the developer creates will be dependent on what revenue it ends up getting if we're able to pass the revenue source that we have in mind. Um, and it also... The other thing that we we couldn't mandate specifically how much housing, because um, much like a lot of the country, Washington state and the city of Seattle have really restrictive zoning laws. And so we're our coalition is actively working on changing those as well, um, on kind of uh, on a parallel uh, manner. But um, until we're able to change zoning laws across the city of Seattle, it's hard to say exactly how much housing we can build because only about 30% of Seattle's landmass is available for multifamily housing. And so we have to change our zoning laws to ensure that this can be built across the city. How much of these guardrails and these kinds of hurdles that you've had to overcome to, to, to put this together influence the way that this is structured uh, specifically? Because my understanding is, is that this. Housing project would be a mixed income, and it's uh, different than some uh, a lot of other public housing developments throughout uh, the country. So, can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. So, the mixed income component is, is, I think, what um, a lot of people kind of are confused by, but it's also like one of the most exciting components of this. Um, So, in the United States, we've historically our public housing has been dedicated to only people making below 50 percent of the area median income for their city, um, which makes it really difficult to maintain in the long term because our federal government does not, frankly, put enough funding into public housing. And so um, because 50 percent of the area median income, those rental rates are not able to provide enough to operate and it's super reliant on the federal government to provide subsidies which it doesn't really do and it hasn't done since the 80s um and so this model of housing income component it first of all makes housing more a public good like they do in other countries around the world myself and a colleague of mine uh had the pleasure of visiting Vienna in September to learn about their social housing um, and the fact across the income spectrum both creates housing as a public good but it also provides the financing that is necessary for um maintenance and operations of the building because you have people on the higher end of the income spectrum who are paying higher amounts of rent uh they are able to uh to help to cross subsidize the lower income people that are in those same developments and maintain and operate the housing in the long term. So it kind of does the, these two different things, both providing housing as a public good and creates a more financially self-sustaining uh, housing mechanism than what we've uh, historically done in the U.S.
6: What we can do today, what we have existing technology for, is to build net zero single family homes. In sunny climates in particular, solar panels work very, very well because it's a lot of roof area relative to very few occupants. But these things, they're hardly a panacea, in part because they're very expensive to build, but more problematically because they induce car-oriented sprawl. And I don't care if the cars are electric or autonomous. Sprawl is sprawl, and it leads to a loss of wetlands, a loss of forests, a loss of farms, and a loss of community. So maybe you're thinking, the right answer to how is our coming building boom are towers. And look, I've actually been called Professor Skyscraper. I love a great tower, but the reality is we are very far away from developing carbon-negative towers. And the reason is towers are energy intensive to build and operate. They house a lot of people, which is great, but they have very little roof area to effectively use solar. And similarly, like wind turbines at the top, all of that stuff barely makes a dent. On top of that, most skyscrapers are built out of steel and concrete, which have a very high degree of embodied energy. Now, I hold out a lot of hope for a technology known as mass timber construction, which would allow us to build tall towers out of environmentally friendly and fire-retardant wood that's actually a carbon sink. But we are a ways away from widespread adoption of that technology. I also hold out hope for the idea that windows could harness solar power. But the idea that we have effective and affordable solar glass in the near future, that's even more nascent than mass timber. So for towers to really be sustainable, we need those clean energy grids that we spoke about, but we don't have them available to us today. So we have a paradox. How do we house all of these people? How do we build urban carbon-negative housing in a means that's technologically attainable and broadly affordable and do that today? Because I'm tired of talking about 2050. I believe that the answer is hiding in plain sight, that there is what I call a Goldilocks scale that sits between the scale of housing and towers. Two to three-story housing that should actually look very familiar to most of you because we built the most beloved parts of our cities with it. The row houses of Boston, the Hutong districts of Beijing, most of the fabric of Edinburgh. What we now build in this scale are largely cheap suburban townhomes They're banal, they're not sustainable, they're not walkable, they're certainly not beautiful. But could they provide a hint, a a framework for a human-scale way of solving this problem that is great for both the climate and our societies? This Goldilocks framework hits the sweet spot between the number of people it can house and the amount of roof area we need to provide them and their communities power. It can be built out of simple local materials like wood or brick, both of which have relatively low embodied energy and can be built by local workers. And the solar panels up above could be supplemented with state-of-the-art battery systems that level out solar supply and user demand. Similarly, we can have electric state-of-the-art air conditioning and heating systems, this exists today, that can create thermal storage. So what that means is it can produce ice or hot water off-peak for use on-peak. This housing could compost food scraps and solid waste and turn it into usable soils or protein for animal feed. And I think most importantly, this kind of housing could provide affordable, communal, equitable housing for communities in dire need of it. And I work with a lot of these communities, and I know how much demand there is for this out there. Speaking of communities, I want to emphasize that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. This is a framework. It's a template. We can work with communities to make this housing appealing, visually and socially, make it socially and racially mixed, integrate it into the lives of existing communities, And when it's built into our cities, what it means is that it's dense enough to support mass transit, like light rail, express buses, bikes, that are networks that plug into jobs, schools, parks, and other daily destinations in our cities. This housing is compact enough that it leaves room for lots of trees and ground cover. That means that we can lower stormwater impacts. We can reduce the heat island effect. We can lower the demand for air conditioning. And for every family that lives in an apartment like this, it's one less house destroying farms and forests. Our collaborating engineers at Thornton Thomas Tomasetti have assured us that this is the lowest carbon footprint per person means of habitation while also providing a sustainable use of land on our planet.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Knowing Better laying out the history of company towns in the U.S. Its history told the story of the town of Pullman. PBS explained the exploitation inherent in company towns. The Wall Street Journal looked at Elon Musk's plan for a company town in Texas. Knowing Better dove into the Silicon Valley version of white-collar company towns. Breaking Point looked again at Elon Musk's town plan. The Young Turks described Disney and Universal's plans for affordable housing and pointed out that's the real problem that society needs to be addressing. The Majority Report spoke with a Seattle activist working toward affordable housing policies in the region. And finally, we heard a TED Talk describing the Goldilocks building style for dense, energy-efficient, community-supporting housing. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Knowing Better, diving into the notorious example of Gary, Indiana, one of the
1: things workers wanted was an eight-hour workday. Gary, Indiana operated on 12-hour shifts, and U.S. Steel said they would need at least 60,000 more workers to keep the same level of productivity if they switched. The resulting steel workers' strike in 1919 was the beginning of the first Red Scare.
0: And CNN reported on a school district in Arizona building teacher housing to address the teacher shortage.
2: I think our concern would be that a professional educator would not only work for the district, but the district would also be their landlord. So We're treating a symptom and not the illness, and that is we don't have enough educators who want to enter the profession, who want to stay in the profession.
0: To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleftcom support or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, I just want to leave you with this last thought that is simultaneously completely unrelated and uh, shockingly parallel. So, while Doing regular research, thinking of topics to do, I came across a description from a recent Counterspin episode about the right to repair movement. And at first glance, that has nothing to do with company towns or anything like that. But given everything we've heard today about the rationales and arguments in favor of company town utopias, listen to this description from the show about the right to repair, Counterspin writes... The right to fix things you buy is the sort of thing you wouldn't think would be controversial here in the land of the free. Corporations' attempts to prevent people from fixing their cell phone or tractor or wheelchair ought to be seen as the overreach it is. But for years, news media have presented the right to repair as a voice in the wilderness, up against benevolent companies' efforts to do best by us all." And when you put it that way, and you've been thinking about company towns for several days, all of a sudden, you start thinking about how when we allow what used to be simple, unquestioned freedoms to be quietly traded away in favor of companies' arguments, that they are doing what's best, yes, for themselves, but also for everyone else at the same time, it turns out we all end up living in a company town. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or text message at 202-999-3991, or you can send me an email to j@bestoftheleft.com at That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Lewindi for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design. Designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com/slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can join the discussion on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com.